Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Monday edition of the Orange and Brown Talk podcast, the Hey Mary Kay edition of the podcast and lobby with Mary Kay Cabot. Our football insider subscribers sent us questions, as they always do, for these podcasts. Mary Kay, let's get right to it. Folks, still thinking about the draft, and I thought this was going to be uh, an interesting question to start with. This has to do with Andrew Barry and kind of judging his drafts and uh, and you know, how we best judge them moving forward. And somebody wants to look back and that is Scott Mandel from Los Angeles. Hey, Mary Kay, since it's impossible to judge this draft for a few years, let's look back a bit. It should be time to judge Andrew Barry's earlier drafts. How would you each judge Andrew Barry's first two drafts today? Well, you know, first of all, I think you have to, I think the jury is still out in a lot of cases, but when you start to look at the 2020 draft, I think you can start to get a pretty good handle on what went on in the 2020 draft. And, you know, you look at, um, at Jed Wills Jr., they just picked up his fifth year option, but certainly, certainly he has not risen to the level of, of a Tristan Wirfs. Tristan Wirfs has made the all pro. Uh, He's made the Pro Bowl twice. He was selected two spots after, uh, two or three spots after, um, after Jed Wills, who was number 10 overall in that draft. And, you know, it's just, uh, it's, it's tough to look at and, and see how good Tristan Wirfs is and, and how he panned out. Now, you do have to qualify it a little bit because he has been starting at right tackle, which, traditionally has been the easier side. But as we keep hearing uh, from the powers that be, uh, you know, it's really not that different anymore to be right tackle or left tackle. It's equally difficult to hold off these edge rushers because they switch them up and they try to find the most favorable matchups. But certainly you would have wanted your number 10 overall pick to have made one Pro Bowl by now. He was set back by an ankle injury two seasons ago, so we're going to give him a little bit of a pass for that. Grant Delpit, second-round pick, ruptured his Achilles. Uh, That was an enormous setback for him. The two third-round picks, uh, Jacob Phillips, tons of injuries in his first couple of seasons, and Jordan Elliott still coming up the learning curve. So, you know, it's it's – one of those situations where you got two starters and potentially two other major contributors or starters out of that draft. So I think the jury is still out a little bit, but you would have liked for the number 10 overall pick to have been trending towards at least a pro bowl by now. Yeah. I think with the the first two drafts in particular, I, I kind of look at it like, I guess I wish we were more sure about a few of the players and I still kind of like a number of them, you know, but I wish we were more sure about Jed Wills as like your left tackle of the future. And with Grant Delpit, we just, things are trending in the right direction, but we still don't know for certain. And then you go and look at those second round picks and, or the the picks the next year, right? Greg Newsome, there's some signs there that he could be really good, but still not a hundred percent sure what his role is, what his long-term outlook is. And with Jeremiah Wusukoromoa, it's just really been injuries. I feel like with a lot of these guys, we just still don't have answers yet. And I don't know if we can, I don't know if we can necessarily give a, a final grade on those first two drafts. You really can't because here's the thing about Andrew Berry's drafts that everyone needs to remember. They 
really skew towards young. I mean, they get these guys as young as they possibly can. And in some cases, they are not ready to play in the NFL. But that is by design. They are, these, this is their farm system. This is their pipeline. They're building for the future. Um, so while they're acquiring, uh, you know, free agents and making trades for the now, uh, they're drafting for two years down the road and three years down the road. So you cannot judge uh, an Andrew Berry draft in the same way that you might be able to judge someone else's draft that is drafting more so for the present. Um, that's why they always go, you know, whenever they really can, they really try to go for uh, those 20-year-olds or those 21-year-olds. I mean, that is really, really young. Uh, I was just doing something the other day on someone uh, might have been, I can't remember if it was Siaki or Cedric Tillman, but I mean, they, like they're really, really young guys. And um, so, you you know, you really just can't put the same stock in a 21 year old that you can maybe a 23 year old, but long range, you're going to have him longer. And the, you know, the bigger picture will be better. Yeah. So Siaki Ika is 22 and Cedric Tillman he was 23, which was like, mm. whoa, the Browns took a 23-year-old with their first pick. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was a little surprising based on what we've seen about him. But you do look at some of these ages. like, I mean, just look at a guy like Greg Newsom who came into the league in 2021. And I'm, I'm pulling up his age right now. He's 22. He's as old as mm. Siaki Aki or Siaki Ika is right now. I wish it were Siaki Aki. It would be a lot more fun <laughs> to say. But Siaki Ika. Um He's he's the same age as him. So, you know, Andrew Barry does want to take young players so that you can kind of maximize that that potential and kind of maximize that window, especially if a guy does get really good and you end up paying a big, a big contract. That big contract is right in those prime years. Yeah. And, you know, I figured out who it was, who I had written about last week that I was thinking, my goodness, this guy is really young. It was Dewan Jones. Right. Um, so he was the he's the offensive tackle from Ohio State. And he has some maturity concerns. There's things that he's got to learn that he's got to grow up and do. But when I was looking uh, at his age and realized that now he's from Ohio State, my daughter is graduating or graduated from Ohio State yesterday. Um, so she is basically the same age as him. And she must have called me, you know, like eight times in the span of three days from Europe to help her out with different issues. And I'm like, this kid's 21, right? He is the same age as, you know, my daughter who just graduated from Ohio State. So you forget sometimes that even though these are professional football players, they're still kids. And especially in the age of young men. And I'm sorry to say this, but there is scientific evidence, Dan, I'm sure it didn't happen for you, but there's scientific evidence that young men uh, don't fully mature until they're about 25 years old. So you don't necessarily see that, you know, tremendous growth in them, you know, from an off the field standpoint sometimes until they've been in the league for a couple of years. Well, I'll, I'll just tell you, one of the things we'll never talk about in this podcast is my life from about age 18 till, I don't know, like age 35, just like, <laughs> I, yeah, it's definitely, um, there's some, there's some tough years when, when you're that age. And then you, you look at all the responsibility that the people that were throwing on these guys, um, just to be NFL players and make a lot of money. And you're like 21, 22 years old living in a new city, maybe for some of these guys for the first time, like 
that that can be really challenging. Yes. And now, of course, now I need to know everything about your life from 18 to 35. So, you know, we're going to get to the bottom of this, Dan. Rest assured, Ashley and I are going to figure this all out. So just be prepared for that. But uh, yes, the truth is it, it takes these guys a while to get acclimated, to grow up in some cases. Even when you look at an Elijah Moore, he's still young. I don't think he's turning 23 like this summer and he's already heading into his third season in the NFL, but he's done some of his growing up in his first couple of years. He probably has said things and done things that he's not going to do when he's 23, 24, 25, because that's what 21 year olds do. And that's what 22 year olds often do. Okay, let's move on to this next question here. We got some long ones, so uh, bear with me here as I kind of edit these uh, reading along. Dave in Denver. Hey, Mary Kay. I love what Andrew Barry and the coaching staff are doing to address the defensive tackle position. They added proven vet size, a promising rookie with size, and some talented flyers, thinking specifically of a guy like Maurice Hurst. Uh, Loves this for a few reasons. They needed help stopping the run, and big guys can help that, but also... Dave thinks that these guys are going to acquire attention from the O-line that can push the pocket and help the defensive ends. And more importantly, those big tackles can allow the linebackers to roam and make plays. So Dave wants to know, does he have rose-colored glasses on or is he reading this defensive tackle remake correctly? I absolutely think that he's reading the defensive tackle remake correctly. They have added a lot of size, but not just size for the sake of size, size with movement ability. That's the key. When you look at a Siaki Ika, not a Siaki Aki, although you're going to want to make it be that, Dan. I know you are. You're going to try hard. And who knows? We might just. It's going to be a struggle on this podcast for a long time. (laughs) I know, but I kind of like it too. Um, but he, you know, he, they don't, they didn't just draft him because of his excellent size. Uh, they did so because of his feet, his movement ability, because in Jim Schwartz's defense, you have to be able uh, to disrupt. You have to be able to wreak havoc. You have to be able to rush the passer. This is not a read and react defense by any stretch of the imagination. It's go and worry about the run later. So that's what this is. And yes, it does give them the opportunity to. Uh, really try, uh, you know, to get to the quarterback. And then if, you know, if you miss a tackle and somebody gets through there, uh, then you do have the linebackers to clean up your mess a little bit, so to speak. So that's kind of the philosophy on defense. But I do think uh, that they have a, a lot of bodies now in there that they can really evaluate and work with and have these guys compete and try to bring out the best in each other, because that's what's going to happen. They're going to look around and they're going to realize, oh boy, not all of us are going to make this football team. I better get my act in gear. And I think that's going to happen with some of these guys, like a Perion Winfrey. I mean, if Perion shows up um, and, and they welcome him back onto this football team, despite his current legal struggles, he's going to have to realize that that he uh, is going to have to toe the line. There's not going to be a whole lot of uh, you know margin for error in terms of not doing the right thing, not being a professional. He's got to make sure... Uh, that he is a grown-up defensive tackle now and being a professional. Going back to that linebacker thing, um, I I think, you know, a guy we talked about earlier, Jeremiah Wusukoromoa, I'm really excited to see what he might be able to do in this defense. Like, if if he doesn't kind of deliver on what they think he can be in this defense, then... 
like it might not happen. And I think the only thing that's really kept him from from being a really good linebacker is just staying healthy and staying on the field. And, you know, last year, of course, uh, you know, he was dealing with personal tragedy and seemed like he wasn't maybe at an ideal playing weight for a lot of the year. Um, so yeah, you, you almost, you don't want to throw the year away, but you you're willing to kind of give that year a pass. Um, I, I think he might be a guy that really benefits from having that beefed up front and then also just playing in Jim Schwartz's scheme. Yeah, I think so. It's going to help any of those linebackers to have and the back end guys to have a really good stout defensive line. When you look at last year, uh, they just really didn't have it. They didn't have what they needed. And, and this year they're going to have it. I mean, even if you just uh, switched out Dalvin Tomlinson for one of those tackles, you were going to be that much better on the defensive line. But now they're going to have some, uh, you know, some defensive ends that are going to be a little bit more into it. Their heads are going to be more into it. We now, you know, now we know in retrospect, looking back, that which is what retrospect is. Um, we now know that um, <laughs> we now know that uh, Jadavian Clowney was not into it for most of the season, going all the way back to September uh, 26th or whatever it was, or September 23rd or somewhere around there. Um, maybe it was October 23rd, but whenever they they played the Baltimore Ravens the first time and lost to the Ravens, all the way back then is when we figured out we've come to find out that Jadavian was already ticked off by then and really not enjoying getting switched to the tougher offensive tackle in that case, Ronnie Stanley. So, you know, this year you're going to have Obo Okoronkwo um, so fired up to be there right from the start. Um, already he and Miles Garrett are working on their friendship, their camaraderie. Uh, Miles is uh, seemingly kind of taking Oboe under his wing already. Um, they've got Alex Wright that I think will come up the learning curve and, and be better in his second year. Um, they drafted Isaiah McGuire. And, and he showed, if you look at some of his film, he shows uncanny handwork for a guy coming out of college, like really good handwork. And when I look at it, in my mind, it looks to me to be almost a little bit more sophisticated um, than Miles Garrett's just just the handwork when he came out of college, just what he was able to do with his hands. And uh, so that's going to be something to keep an eye on. And as I wrote, um, as I wrote yesterday, I wrote a column yesterday saying that they still have another veteran pass rusher on their radar. So I'm, I'm, I'm saying you can almost take it to the bank that they're going to add one of these remaining veteran pass rushers that are still out there. There's a group of like five, six, seven of these guys still floating around out there. And I'm saying the Browns are going to sign one of them. And, and I'd be all for that. I think there's still maybe like a guy short there. So adding mm-hmm. that veteran would, would be a, a big boost, I think, for this for this defensive front. Uh, okay, we're going to take a break here on the Orange Brown Talk podcast. When we come back, we got more questions from our Football Insider subscribers. And welcome back to the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. Our Football Insider subscribers sending us in questions for this Hey Mary Kay edition of the podcast. If you want to get involved in Football Insider, uh, you get a newsletter every day. You get access to stories on cleveland.com slash browns that are for subscriber only. 
And you can become one of our text subscribers, which is where we get these questions. So it's cleveland.com slash Browns, the blue banner at the top of the page to get info on that and get signed up with rookie minicamp coming up, OTAs, uh, veteran minicamp, training camps right around the corner, schedule release. There's a lot to get involved with if you want to be a Football Insider subscriber. Now's the time. So let's go to Carloso from Plymouth, Massachusetts, one of our long timers. He sends in a lengthy one about Kevin Stefanski. Hey, Mary Kay. He wants to preface this by acknowledging he supports Kevin Stefanski as a head coach, but has concerns about him as the leader of the offense and would appreciate your thoughts. Can the new offense build off the old offensive scheme or does it require a completely new and revamped playbook? And then off of that, given the last five games of the season last season, appearing to not fully take advantage of Deshaun Watson's ability. Is there evidence that Stefanski has the insight and knowledge to implement a new offense and the flexibility to call plays in a way that highlights Deshaun Watson's skill set? You know, I'm going to say yes. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt uh, because last year it was too late to really reinvent the wheel. I mean, they had to uh, get that train rolling along with Jacoby Brissett. They had to do the things that he did well. And the players were acclimated to Jacoby Brissett. I mean, they had their chemistry down with him. Amari Cooper and Jacoby Brissett were texting each other four or five times a day, talking about the matchup and the game plan coming up. Uh, so they were all about Jacoby Brissett. And it was really, really too hard uh, to dig in and switch things up. A lot of times uh, teams will do that sort of at the bye week. You do like your after action report. You sit there at the bye week and you figure out what's going right and you figure out what's going wrong and you throw some things out and you put some new things in. Well, they never had that opportunity with Deshaun Watson. They were learning on the fly. I mean, they really had very little time with him in the preseason. They had, he did not play much at all in the preseason. And when he did play in Jacksonville in that preseason game, Anthony Schwartz was struggling so much that uh, it it really kind of wiped out the small bit of time that Deshaun Watson had in that game. So they really couldn't reinvent the wheel with him. Uh, They just kind of had to hold down the fort and do the best that they could. And these guys, you know, it was difficult for the, for the receivers in particular, I think, to try to figure out what Deshaun was all about. It's a whole incredibly different style when you have someone uh, that is going to be making these off-script plays and off-schedule plays and running around and you know throwing on the run and scramble drills and all the things that you have to do. Um, we remember that one time where Mike Woods, uh, sort of down at the goal line, just wasn't ready. He just wasn't ready for what Deshaun uh, was about to offer him, which would have been a touchdown pass. And he, he just wasn't, he just didn't have his head there yet. So that's what these guys, uh, are working on now is trying to figure that out. I think that Kevin Stefanski has spent most of his off season trying to figure out how to call the right game for Deshaun Watson. I know that Deshaun Watson has had input in how he wants things to go for himself. Um, you can see alone by how they've set up the quarterback room that they're all about doing what's good for Deshaun Watson. So they're certainly not going to scrimp when it comes to calling plays. They're not going to say, no, we're going to do it our way, Deshaun. And like, you have to kind of get on board with what we do. That's not what they're going to do. They're going to do what he does well. They're going to look at, you know, even some of his college film. They'll do, you know, they'll look at all the stuff that he did in Houston so well. Uh, I'm sure that Kevin Stefanski, even though he will not give it up, 
I'm sure he's talked to people that have coached Deshaun Watson. I know they've talked, I'm sure they've talked to Quincy Avery, his quarterback's coach. Um, so I, I think that, uh, I think they're going to do everything that they can to make sure that this offense is geared to Deshaun. And I think they're keeping it under wraps. I don't think they want anybody to really know what they're going to do. Uh, they have this competitive advantage right now, and they're not about to blow that. Yeah, we're going to get like some small glimpses coming up in OTAs and minicamp, but we're not going to see the full package really until we get to training camp. Um, it's You're right. I mean, that is a big advantage for them, that they can kind of keep things secret, even though they're bringing back the same play caller and, and the same quarterback. And, you know, while it's fair to say that they're – might not be evidence that he can necessarily call an offense that suits Deshaun Watson. There also isn't evidence that he can't. He's, I mean, he's never been in this situation as a play caller. He's never had a quarterback like this as a play caller. So uh, I understand him wanting that chance to do it. And I think, you know, he deserves that benefit of the doubt for now. Yeah. And they have influences from all over the place. They've got Alex Van Pelt. They've got Bill Musgrave. Uh, you know, they've got Chad O'Shea. They've got all kinds of offensive influences. And remember, Kevin Stefanski had plenty of different kinds of offensive influences just in his one job with the Minnesota Vikings. He had all different kinds of coordinators that came through there. Um, and I, I say this about him all the time, and it, it actually is a sort of a Jesuit thing. Anybody ever affiliated with a, a Jesuit school understands what I, I'm talking about when I talk about the growth mindset. You know, he comes from that Jesuit background. They they really kind of, uh, you know, they really espouse that and they preach that from the day you get on campus in those schools is to have a growth mindset where you're always ready for, um, you know, whatever the world and the universe and whatever can bring to you. And I think that's how Kevin Stefanski is. And, um, and he's certainly not going to paint himself into a corner of the traditional old West Coast offense. That's just, you know, it's not enough for Deshaun. So they'll incorporate some college concepts. They'll incorporate some three wides, some four wides. They'll incorporate RPOs. Uh, they'll, they'll do all different kinds of things. And remember, Bill Musgrave has just been in the college game for the last several years. Uh, so he brings a perspective um, from that standpoint, um, so yeah, they have a couple of defensive coaches that have come from the college ranks that also have a different perspective on things and they can uh, mine uh, their brains for those kinds of things too. So I think Kevin will be fine. You know, they might have to adjust as they go along. What works in week three might not be the same thing that they're going to do in week six. I think it might be a work in progress as they go along. And here's a very important thing that I've been harping on and harping on and harping on. They need to find which receivers are going to have that natural chemistry with Deshaun Watson. That, in my opinion, is not going to really manifest itself until they are in the games, until you see how teams are defending them and defending him when he's on the run and who can hang with all that. I mean, who can keep up with, uh, you know, what these defenses are going to do to them. So it might look good on the grass in in August, but it's got to look good in October. And that's when I think you'll start to see what they're going to do. And there's one other point I want to make here, Dan, real quick. And that is when you mentioned, um, you know, that, and we talked about how they're keeping things under wraps right now. Think about this. Their first eight days of training camp are going to be at the Greenbrier. And those practices are going to be closed to the public. So you're not going to have 
all of those people at practice putting out all that film on what's going on with the Cleveland Browns' new revamped offense. They're kind of taking it into the middle of nowhere and they're sort of, you know, battening down the hatches and doing their own thing for the first full eight days of training camp where, you know, it, it's not going to give everybody that eight extra days to get a read on what you're doing. Yeah, and I'm sure they're going to say to us, uh, hey, you guys can't film a whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> I'm sure right. there's going to be restrictions on us when, when we're there covering it. But like, yes. yeah, no, you guys can't film this. And also two days in Philadelphia, which, you know, last year the joint practices were not open to the public. Those were in Berea. But um, I would imagine that the Browns would love it if those practices were were closed as well. Yeah, I mean, I think, I really think that they are only going to be doing, and I don't know this for sure yet, but when you add up the Greenbrier and then the fact that they're going to, you know, they're going to go to Canton, they're going to play in that first uh, preseason game there on August 3rd, and then they're going to be actually in Philadelphia for five days um, during this this preseason uh, because they have to get there, and then they're going to practice against the Eagles for two days. Then they're going to have a day off there. And then they're going to play the game and then they come home that following Friday. So from the 13th to like the 18th, they're going to be gone. So I think the way that it's shaking, shaping up is that they might only have about eight maximum practices in Berea that are going to be open to the public uh, where people can put out a little film and, you know, and show what they're doing. And, um, you know, and even then, you know, we're not going to be able to, to really, you know, film every single thing that's going on. We're not allowed to film team, you know, 11 on 11s and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I, I think they're going to do a pretty good job of keeping this pretty close to the vest this, this offseason and preseason. Okay, a few more questions here. Um, you had mentioned Alex Van Pelt earlier, so I'm going to ask this question from Phil Knopp in Nashville, Tennessee. Hey, Mary Kay, what is Alex Van Pelt's specific role since Kevin Stefanski is still calling plays? Well, he's got a couple of very specific roles, and that is to um, you know to work on game planning and to really control and, and oversee the whole offense during the week. He's going to have some help from Bill Musgrave uh, with some of those meetings because uh, Alex Van Pelt's other huge role this year is to be the quarterback's coach. And that's a big job this year. And the reason he has that job is because of what a tremendous job he did with other quarterbacks that he's worked with, such as Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers loved him, loved working with him. Alex Van Pelt is a former NFL quarterback. He knows what it's like to stand back there and look out and read a defense. He knows what it's like to take a hit. Uh, he knows what it's like uh, you know, to run a no huddle. Uh, he, he doesn't have to guess. And I think that's invaluable. So I think it's really great that he is the quarterback's coach. Uh, so when he is really tied up with those guys, and he's also got, got to get Joshua Dobbs, who's only started two NFL games, ready to be a backup and go in and play. So that's a big job too. Um, and then Dorian Thompson Robinson, a rookie coming out, uh, you know, will for all intents and purposes be probably the number three. Um, so that's, that's a big duty to be in there doing that. Um, but then he will also, um, you know, he'll be very, very involved in, uh, the game planning and he will set up the meetings and then he'll turn some of that over to Bill Musgrave, but he's got a big job this year. Yeah. I mean, the reality is Kevin's the play caller, but 
Alex has such a big role in all of that because Kevin's got to be the head coach. He's got to be the guy that kind of runs that whole organization. And so some of those little things that an offensive coordinator would do, I mean, that's what Alex Van Pelt has to do. He's He's got to be kind of the coach of that offense over there and, and be a sounding board for Kevin. It's just on Sundays, Kevin gets to put on the headset and call the plays. But Alex Van Pelt is doing, I mean, he's, he's probably doing a lot of that heavy lifting uh, on that offensive side of the ball. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and and I, I think the way they have it set up this year, uh, I, I think it's really going to be good. I think that um, I think Alex is going to be really good for Deshaun. And I would have to think that Deshaun Watson probably had some input in Alex Van Pelt being his quarterback's coach. I think he's really excited about that. I really do. And I think Alex will be, you know, sort of the, a good go-between, uh, you know, between Kevin Stefanski and Deshaun Watson to make sure that the, the lines of communication are open, that if Deshaun likes something or doesn't like something, he can make sure that he's articulating that to Alex Van Pelt, who can then convey all of that to Kevin Stefanski, because Kevin's not always going to be in the quarterback room. He will be in there, you know, a fair amount, but, you know, as you mentioned, he's got to oversee the whole process. And he's got a new defensive coordinator this year who can basically run things on his own. And he's got a new special teams coordinator this year who can also run things completely on his own. But he still has to have a handle on everything. And what Kevin Stefanski has, has discovered in his first three years on the job is that there are always a million little fires that you have to be putting out all day long. I mean, whether it is a player who was late to a team meeting or whatever the case may be there, you know, a staff member that has COVID or whatever. I mean, there's just constantly, constantly a million things that you have to deal with on your plate. So I think he's got things set up very well this year. And, and I always, I always point this out. The head coach of the NFL team is the only person we talk to what four times a week, five times mm-hmm. a week. Like that's the yeah. only person that we talk to all those times and they have to answer because of that. They have to answer for everything the GM does, everything that, you know, some person in the, on the social media team sends out a tweet they shouldn't have sent out or, it, you know, I mean, there's something that, that doesn't even fall under their umbrella of having to manage or deal with. They have to answer for on, on a regular basis because that's the person that sits up in front of that room four or five times a week um, to answer questions from us. Yeah, and I think that Kevin Stefanski has the right demeanor for that sort of thing. There are certain coaches that you knew just couldn't handle all of that. And I think Freddie Kitchens was one of those guys that were, it was just like, there was too much on his plate. There was just too much going on. There were too many moving parts and too many pieces, and you didn't know how to respond to this or answer that. Uh, Kevin does a really good job of multitasking and of handling 12 things coming at him. He's sort of built for chaos. He really is. And you have to be. Uh, I think that's one of the number one things um, that, that that is one of his number one assets is the fact that that he can handle all of that stuff that goes on in the course of any given day and then plop himself down in front of us and answer for it all. OK, we're going to call it a pod there. We've still got some questions left over, though. So, uh, hey, let, let's do this again tomorrow. Another Hey, Mary Kay edition of the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. We have some schedule stuff coming up too. Uh the usual schedule stuff that we do uh, leading up to Thursday night. Uh, so we'll have full coverage of that. And of course, rookie mini camp is this weekend. So we'll uh, we'll have some stuff off of rookie mini camp at the end of the week and also early next week. So just get subscribed to the Orange and Brown Talk podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. And like I mentioned earlier, become a football insider subscriber 
cleveland.com slash browns the blue banner at the top of the page to take care of that mary Kay, i'll talk to you later sounds great